take your Bibles and open to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And actually, for John, not only in John chapter 1, but in multiple places, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, in Revelation, uh, he has a fondness for that term, we're going to see it this morning, for children. So kind of just a neat providence as the children sing. And even uh, for many of them, we understand, just like anytime a young child sings a hymn, they don't have a full understanding. They might not even embrace the truths they are singing. Even in that song, This Is My Story, and we understand that for some of them it may be their story, and for some of them uh, they don't know what that means yet, what it is to trust and fully trust Christ. And so be praying for that, uh, for all those little children, because it is those that come to Christ with a full understanding of trust, the faith of a child, that they don't think, oh, I'm an adult and I can earn my way, but as a child who understands they're absolutely dependent on adults, that's kind of, as we see faith described, even throughout John, we're going to see that uh, that belief was the way actually John would use that term. But look with me in chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through 18. I'm going to read the entirety. We kind of started verses 1 through 5, and as you'll kind of see, um, I didn't want to use a big term, um, like if you want to look it up, chiastic structure, but there is a movement in which there are these kind of different ideas that are repeated and built towards this middle of verse 12 of the children of God. I don't think you need to fully understand that to appreciate all the truths here. But verses 14 through 18 are going to reflect very much what we saw in verses 1 through 5. And so even in some ways, we'll spend a little less time in that section towards the end of our sermon this morning. Uh, We've already kind of built in 1 through 5 of the Incarnation. But I do want you to see there is unity here. I do want you to understand that this all goes together. That he's building his argument. That he's doing a level of which we would call some prologue or an introduction where he's introducing terms and ideas that he's going to then further develop throughout his Gospel of John. So, you see these terms, you'll get a beginning understanding, but trust me, you'll have a far deeper understanding as we go and study throughout the book. So it's really a preview of what is to come. So look with me, we're going to read these verses together, hopefully give a good context for us this morning. So John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. And it was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light of men in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. There was a man, having been sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, so that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. 
For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Father, as we come to your word, may your spirit illumine our hearts and minds as we look upon things that we can only begin to grasp. At the very least, may we have a vision of Christ, knowing that he is fully God, that he is the incarnate word that became flesh, that made his place among us for a purpose. As we'll see, even as John further gives witness later in this chapter, that he is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. May we see Christ here. May you root in us even these terms that as we see them over and over again, we see how your spirit inspired this writing through John, that we might have a greater understanding of Christ as your son. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, I entitled this sermon, The Foundations of Belief. And the way I understand the Gospel of John, and we don't need to break it down again this morning, the same way the introduction, but this is him laying all the groundwork on which he's going to build. So if you buy his definitions, if you buy his terms, if you buy his arguments early, he's going to be able to show you and really prove to you that Jesus is the Son of God. And when I think of foundations and building upon foundations, you can't help but think of construction and all those things. And probably the greatest illustration that maybe you'll think of from your Bibles is the invitation that comes in Matthew chapter 7. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, and for those of you who kind of maybe don't always associate that when we preach through Matthew, it's amazing how that fits together. But what's so well known, that invitation after all the teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he invites his listeners, and by extension us, to build our lives on the rock. Why? Because life, and there it's the wind, and it's the rivers, and it's the rain that's going to come. And the one who builds their house on the rock can withstand those pressures. If you build your life on the sand, you're not going to. And there's just boom, boom, illustration after illustration in Matthew 7. The two ways, the two trees, two foundations. But I think of it here, and what John is going to do is he's going to build on a rock-solid foundation. We've all probably done projects and built things. I can vividly think of a couple of my own projects where I didn't do it thoroughly. In my first home, I was too cheap to pay the concrete guys to come in and pour a concrete slab. And I thought, I'll just lay pavers. It won't be hard. It said... Two inches of rock as a base layer. So pull out the dirt, level it, put rock down, and then put sand down. Then, you know, level it and put down your bricks. And I thought, how important is that base rock? I could probably get away with an inch. Well, you know what happened. Within a a year or two, it started to move and to this day, I don't live there anymore. But it's a little crooked. You can guess what I did with my second home. I paid the concrete guys. I said, just... Do it one day, boom, smooth, level, and I know that I can put something on that and it'll be strong and it will last. The foundation John is going to build here, and really as we begin seeing that being built in the first five verses, is going to be rock solid. 
We saw how he establishes case for the deity of Christ in the relationships that Christ has. The relationship to God. The relationship to creation. He was in the beginning with God. He was always there. He was always existent. Yes, he came. He was, we'll see, became flesh. But that wasn't him being created. He was always created. And that is something different. He's adding something there, as we'll see, the flesh to him. But he has always existed because he has always been God. And so he looks at those relationships to God, to creation, even to man, that he is the light. And even to the darkness, to evil, that he is the one who will overtake it. Why? Because he is the source of the light, which, of course, now we're going to build on that in verse 6, and we're going to see him introduce John. And you kind of go, why introduce him here and then repeat later? Well, it's just a good introduction. He's going to cover lots of things. John's going to be his kind of prime witness, of which that term will be used over and over again, to establish these proofs of who Christ truly is. Fully God, fully man. So let's look together. We're going to see how he develops these ideas. The first one being witness. And how he builds on his gospel argument. And we're going to see it in this way. These key ideas. Five of them. To understand in John's prologue. How to develop. How he develops them in his gospel. And he points to belief in Christ. So these five key ideas. That each of us are going to have to understand. From this prologue. This introduction. And hopefully as you see these key terms, you'll start to go, oh, I see them repeating over and over again and how it's so developed. The first one is this idea of witness, of witness. Christ has always existed. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning, verses 1 and 2, with God. But His earthly ministry... That has a beginning. He enters into time and that is a beginning. And that beginning is marked not so much by him doing miracles or him preaching, but by one who comes as a forerunner. That was predicted. And he's not concerned about Isaiah's predictions here, but we know those from the other Gospels and from Isaiah that one would come and would pave the way, make the way, make the path straight. And that man is John. Only named John here, usually John the Baptist, but there's no confusion even with the author John because he doesn't name himself here. So... The only John that, the main John we're going to see here is John the Baptist. So look at verse 6. We're going to see 6 through 8. And then it's going to be, as he said, there's, there's a symmetry here with verse 15 that lays out the continual idea of witness, which kind of flows throughout this section. But verse 6 says, There was a man having been sent from God whose name was John. And yes, it feels a little bit out of place except for understanding he's putting all the pieces together to build the foundation. And one of them is going to be this idea of witness, particularly John. And he came, verse 7, as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. And one of the things he has to establish, not only for his readers, but for those who are the original audience, is that John is not the light. There are those who are followers of John. John is baptizing individuals. John made it clear there's one that will come after him. But the writer of this gospel wants to make sure, do you know, John is reflecting. John the Baptist is reflecting light. He is not the source of light. Back to verse 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's a different kind of light. The church, we're 
to be a light, right? But this is different. Jesus is the source of that light. We simply reflect that light. And it becomes this important truth of the gospel. He's a witness to that. He came to bear witness about this light. But let's focus on this witness key. It's so important to the gospel of John. If you think of Old Testament truths that they establish a fact. You had to have two or three witnesses. That would be confirmed by their testimonies. There's going to be multiple witnesses throughout the gospel. Verse 15 continues to say, John bears witness about him. And it's interesting here, because he doesn't go on to what he'll say later in chapter 1, that, behold, the Lamb of God will take the sins of the world. But he sticks with his topic of the deity of Christ at 15. And what does he bear witness particularly about? Yes, he bears witness that he is the Lamb of God. Yes, he bears witness that the Lamb of God will take away the sin of the world. But here, verse 15, this idea of witness is here that he is a witness about the deity of Christ. He says, he cries out saying, verse 15, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. So the truth about his witness here isn't about the mission of Christ, because what he's establishing in this introduction is the deity of Christ. And so John is a witness to the fact that even though he is older, as the older cousin, Christ always existed and therefore came and existed before him. How is that possible? There's only one way. God existed before, or Christ existed before he was born, i.e. he was in the beginning with God because he was God, which is the argument. He doesn't go into the long narrative because that is his intention here. When you think about this word throughout the Gospel of John, I'm just going to look at a few places, a few other witnesses and you just listen to this. We, don't, we won't go there. But there's multiple places where you see different witnesses. The first one, you could look and you could see the first three verses. It'd say the first witness is really the God, the Father. Why? Because he was there in the beginning with the Son. In fact, it's explicit. If you write down John 8, 18 and want to go there later, Jesus said, the Father who sent me bears witness about me. It's one of those terms you can highlight, underline as you go through the Gospel of John. So you have the witness of God the Father. Secondly, you have the witness, as we see here, is John the Baptist. And it's going to be fleshed out later, even more, in the later of this chapter. Thirdly, Jesus himself bears witness to himself. He says this way in John 8, verse 14. If I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. Fourthly, you see the witness of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness to who Jesus is. John 15, 26, it says, When the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will what? What's the job of the Spirit? To bear witness about me, it says, John 15, verse 26. Another witness are the works, the miracles. And not really just the main seven, but everything Christ does bears that this man is not like any other man. John 10, 25 says, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. This is immensely important emphasis in his proof of the deity of Christ throughout the Gospel of John. The scripture itself, you can say, is the sixth witness. Fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Jesus said this, John 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So to those Jews, to those Pharisees saying, look at your 
scriptures. They bear witness. They point to me, the Messiah. Seventh, his own disciples, including the writer himself, John. Jesus tells them in John 15 that you also will bear witness. And are we thankful they did? Because you have been with me from the beginning. And then lastly, or eight, you can see that the witnesses of the different individuals throughout the Gospel of John, he, this kind of interview process that goes on with others. So the woman at the well says, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? It's a witness. Or the blind man in John 9. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see That's his witness. That's his testimony of who this man is. So God the Father, John the Baptist, Christ bears witness to himself, the Spirit, the works of Christ, the Scriptures themselves, the disciples, and the other men and women who personally encountered Christ. You're going to see it over and over and over again. This becomes huge throughout from the beginning to the end of the Gospel of John that he has witnesses to show you that Christ is fully God. Pretty impressive array of witnesses. I mean, you look and you see from the beginning, God the Father, yes, is giving testimony, witness to Christ. But even more evidence is given. We live in a world where you have access to more information, I'm sure, in the last number of years than existed, at least from an access point, from any other generation, probably combined. And you start to get to the place where, how do you really know what is real? We have AI things, right, generated people, pictures, and you go, when can it be generated to the extent that we can't tell the difference? And this idea of a witness, are there two other three flesh and blood humans who can confirm that this actually happened becomes pretty important. Not only then, but I think in a world where you don't know what's true, even today we understand how important it is to have these evidences. And John is saying, I have these, I've compiled these to show you there are true witnesses of who Jesus is. Not just a couple people. Not even just people in general. Because he's going to make theological arguments. He's going to make arguments from this experience that people have seen of the miracles. But also then the testimony of those whose lives have been changed. It's going to be a strong pillar to build his argument on throughout the Gospel of John. This idea of witness. Beginning here with John the Baptist. But again built throughout Kind of a thread that will run throughout the whole gospel of John. Well, similar to that, kind of in the same section, what does he bear witness to? This idea that John is going to use to build throughout his gospel of that Jesus is the light. It's going to show up over and over and over again. And he introduces it here that he's bearing witness, verse 7, about the light so that all might believe through him. He's not the light. That's important. He's simply a reflection of the light. He came to bear witness about the light. And this is interesting, verse 9. There was the true light. Not false, but true. You kind of say tr- truth becomes another thing that pops up multiple times. But true light, which coming into the world enlightens everyone. We'll see in a moment. Let's try to develop that idea. But this idea of bearing witness to the light, that it's something that is different than anything else, different than what John is doing. He is the source of the light. 
Early on when my kids were little, we picked up a book, and if you have kids, this is a great book. If you're grandparents, you want a great book for your, your grandkids. A book called Full Moon Rising. So not full, fool, F-O-O-L. Full Moon Rising. And it's a children's book about the moon stealing the glory of the sun. It's kind of just a poetry thing, and it's kind of funny, because the moon thinks, I'm the light. And it goes through the story, and by the end of the story, the moon is sorely disappointed, because he realizes there is no light outside of the source. The moon simply reflects the sun and has no light in and of itself. It teaches kind of great theological truths about the glory of God that we, we're not to steal, we're not to say we're the light, but we're to give glory back to the source of the light. It's a good illustration of that. But it highlights here in verse 9 the uniqueness of his light, that it's the true light, but it's also coming into the world and it is distinct. So there was the true light, verse 9, and it's coming into the world. Well, what do you mean? It means it wasn't in the world. It's something unique now that for the first time is breaking forth into the world that has never been here before. To shine light on every single person. John 8, 12 is going to say it very plainly that Jesus is the light of the world. The world is going to come and it's going to invade the created order. And it's going to shine not just on Israel. LSB says enlightens everyone. It's going to shine on everyone. Jew, Gentile, everyone. And we don't think of that as super unique because we're going, well, of course it is. Because we're the church and the church is to send the gospel to the nations. But imagine being the original audience. Or imagine even being a Jewish person reading the gospel of John and understanding, oh, this which was promised, it is the Old Testament truth that it's going to be through... Israel, the nations are blessed, yes, but here it is to say plainly, it's for everyone. There's no distinction where the message is going to go. But, you'll see there is one distinction made, and the distinction made is going to be by what one does with the light. Those in the world who believe in the light, and those who do not believe in the light. That brings us to the third idea highlighted by John throughout his gospel, and that is not only witness and light, but thirdly, the world. The world. This light is coming into the world, and the distinction now is not who is going to hear the message or who is going to be saved from their sin. The distinction now becomes, what are they going to do? And what we first see here is your prep for where this story is going. It's not going to be a trajectory up of, of, of joy and no suffering. You learn very early that the light, that Jesus comes into the world, verse 10, he was in the world. The light breaks in. He's in it. It's what? The world that he made. We saw that. Nothing was made apart from him, verse 3. So he comes into the world. He's made it through him. Yet the world does not know him. Put it this way, verse 11. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. For sure, that at least means the world that he made. He's the creator. He made it all, and they don't recognize the creator himself. And maybe even more specific, he's come to Israel. He's born as a Jewish man, the promised Messiah. They don't recognize him. They don't 
receive him, which becomes another important aspect of what do you got to do. Belief is more than knowing the facts. It's this idea of you actually have to do something with him and this idea of receiving him, accepting him. There's change implied in that that's going to happen. The world is going to be dominantly, throughout the Gospel of John, a negative term. It's what's going to make John 3.16, which you all know, I think, well. It's the first Bible verse you ever heard or you saw on a football sign or something like that at a stadium. For God so loved the world. You do a deep dive into world and the gospel of John, and you will be more amazed at that phrase. God so loved the world, because the world is not a lovely place. In fact, John 4.42 is going to say he is the savior of the world. Flip over to John chapter 7, just for a moment this morning, to get a flavor of what is to come. Don't take my word for it. The world is a sinful place. Just in context here, the works of the world, Jesus are going to say, are evil. Which, of course, is establishing the need for a savior. Chapter 7 of John, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. If we understand his own, to be not just the world, but specifically the Jewish people didn't accept him, like, this is crazy. Not only does the world as his creator reject him, but his own people, he can't walk among them. But now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booze was dear. Therefore his brother said to him, leave here, go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself publicly to what? The world. But why isn't he going to show himself to the world? Because they will not recognize him. In fact, the opposite is happening. When he shows himself to the world, they're going to crucify him. A little sad anecdote, verse 5. Not even his brothers were believing in him. They're saying, hey, give us more, give us more, go out and do more. And Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, because he knows what the world, what is they going to do? They're not going to believe, they're going to reject. But your time is always here. Why? Well, it's kind of the slight of his brothers, right? Because they don't believe, they're of the world. Jesus is not Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I bear witness about it that its deeds are evil. Actually fairly insulting. You think about it. It's true. Absolutely true. Go up to the feast yourselves because you're of the world and you're evil. And they won't judge you. I'm not going to go up to the feast, it says verse 8, because my time has not yet been fulfilled. Jesus can't even peacefully walk during the three years of his earthly ministry because he knows the minute he does so publicly, they're going to crucify him and he's going to be crucified. Yes, yes, he's going to die a substitutionary atoning death for his own, but he's going to do so at the proper moment. The world is evil. Its works are evil. It has not known him. Verse 11... His own do not receive him. It's going to be built on over and over and over again. 
good news is, Jesus is the Savior of that evil world. The way I think of it is the message of the gospel is not universalism. It's not to say, so for God so loved the world, it's not this idea of a universalistic message that everyone's going to be saved, but it is a universal message. The light comes to everyone, and the gospel will go to the world. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, to the world. You're going to see that to what? The evil and wicked, if you want to put the modifiers in front. World. It's amazing. So you see witness and light and word and world. If you go even down to uh, verse 14... It says, the word became flesh dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's going to come into that world as one of their own, as flesh. And we'll see more of that as we look towards our last point. But fourthly, not only do you see witness and light in world, you're going to see this idea, which isn't quite the way it's worded here, of new birth. New birth, verses 12 and 13. This is kind of the high point of this section here. Everything's moving towards really what is his central theme of belief. But verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Who were born, this is key, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Well, this introduces the concept, you could say, of born again. It doesn't use the language of John chapter 3 quite yet, but I think this is the idea that's built on in John chapter 3. That as many as received him, that is, he comes to the world, they don't receive him, but if you do receive him, he's saying as many as have received him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. Which even there is interesting because he uses the idea of children, not sonship. And sonship is an important concept of being an heir in that culture. You want to be even girls. You want to be a son. And since the sons are heirs in the first century. But to hear this idea of children, it's the idea of birth. That you are born of God. And it even says, even to those who believe in his name, I think is a qualifier. If you have an ESV this morning, you'll see it probably says, as many as received him to those who believe. It's that same idea in LSB. Even to those who believe his name is explaining what it means to receive them or receive Christ. It means to believe in them, which, of course, is where we're marching to John chapter 21. That's his purpose, that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, this concept is going to be built notably, probably most, at John chapter 3 in Nicodemus, who loves the cover of dark. Why? Because the world loves darkness. That's what John chapter 3 states there from the last, thinking of that idea of world. But he's going to explain that you must be born again. And Nicodemus, of course, when we get there very soon, is going to go, that's crazy. I actually think, uh, spoiler alert, when we get there, I think he's tracking. Some people in John chapter 3 think Nicodemus is lost. I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. And I think, I think he actually, he's tracking. He's tracking because teachers teach him metaphors. He knows he's not talking about being actually born again, like I said, when we get there. But he's still, the point being, but that's impossible, is his point. It's impossible for a man to ever be born again, have a new life, which I think is the point of John chapter 3. It is impossible, and I think it's previewed here in verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
It's something that God must do. It is God who will give them a new heart. This idea of Old Testament new heart, idea of regeneration in John chapter 3, a new birth, being born again. But it's necessary, and this is just enough to say here, that it's necessary and it is God's work. There's a natural way of being born. We, most of us, I think, have a basic understanding of that. We may not have as much control as we think we have, but the idea is that for most people, this is how we control it, and it can happen. But spiritual birth? It's going to be like the wind. Nobody knows where it blows, when it blows. You can't see it, but God is going to work. We've all seen that in different people's lives. But this is also stating here, what is the implication of this? It's that it's saying this is not a work-based system. How much do I pay to be born again? How much do I do to become a child of God? Just give me the list. Pretty much everything we understand as humans is, okay, I want to get here in life. I want to be the CEO. I want to be the boss. I want to be the business owner. What's the path? There is no path. It's something only God can do. You can't do enough to earn your way to heaven. You can't buy, remember Revelation, you can't buy the living water. It's only offered free. The woman at the well, nothing she can do. It's a gift that must be received through faith by believing in Jesus, the Son of God, who he is and, of course, what he has done. You see that message built on over and over and over again. It's necessary and it's a work of God. Lastly, here we see the incarnation, which is simply the the broad category of that word of Jesus being born in a manger, of God putting on flesh, that he is virgin-born and therefore he is, there is no, in that sense, human father, there is a heavenly father, so he's fully God, but he is born of a woman and therefore he is man How do we understand that? Well, this is probably no better place here than to try to grasp an understanding of what is going on that the Word became flesh. He's going to conclude, as I said, his introduction in very much the way that he started. The Word is going to be ultimately in eternity with the Father. Verse 18, the bosom of the Father is going to... The Word is with God. And verse 18, the Word is with God. But this understanding of that he came, he broke in. By how? By becoming flesh. By dwelling among us. That idea there of he placed his tent, he pitched his tent in this world, in history, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. And I imagine John, the author, is saying we, me included. We beheld his glory. Not only did he see Christ, did he see his miracles, he saw the transfiguration. He was himself a witness to all of these things. What kind of glory, though? The glory, he says, of the only begotten from the Father. Or, again, if you have ESV, only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He put his tent and he dwelt among us. This idea of only begotten, if you have an older translation or LSB, keeps that translation in here. It's the idea of uniqueness. Not just the only, but 
unique. And it's important because that term doesn't just mean being begotten in the sense of being born, because he's not born into existence, but he is born of a virgin, right? But he's also, and this is the word, that he is one of a kind. So the Greek word there for only begotten or only son has the idea of pertaining to being the only one of its kind within a specific relationship. He is the only son. And pertaining to being the only one of its kind or class unique in kind. It's kind of helpful if you look at another usage, I think, in Hebrews chapter 11, where it uses the same term here. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only son. And all of you who have your Sunday school diploma, remember, is Isaac his only son? He's not. He's not his firstborn son. What does it mean? It's saying he is the son of the promise. He's unique in that way. And it's used in the same sense here. Not that Jesus didn't exist before, because we've already established that, but that this relationship to the Father is he is the one and the only son of God. Just in that same way, Isaac is the one and the only son of the promise. Unique, full of Grace and truth, which is going to be important because verse 17, that grace and truth is what you want. Moses brought something else, but the letter of the law kills, but life is going to come through Christ, grace and truth. We already looked a little bit at this bearing witness of John, and he bare witness to the truth that he existed before. Just in case you, you get caught up in verse 14, you go, well, no, no, Jesus is born. He didn't exist, and then he existed. And No, no. John's witnessing to the very fact, no, no, you got that wrong. He existed before me. Why? Back to the beginning, one through five, because he is fully God. He was there at the beginning. In fact, everything was created through him. And verse 16, for if his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace, which I think is this implication of saying the gospel message that we receive life everlasting through these gospel truths about who Christ is, what he has done for us. And to accentuate that, He contrasts it, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law, the rules, the regulations, the standard of which we are all fallen short, it can't save. It can only condemn. And here, he's saying, but this grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ, which I'm going to fully explain in my gospel, forward, Life comes from Christ. In fact, the best way to explain this is, who is Jesus? Summary, verse 18. We'll understand if he's fully God, what does this mean? Because God cannot be seen in the sense that God is spirit. And it says no one has seen God at any time. Those are perhaps glimpsed his glory or some kind of image of that glory. No one has truly seen God any time. They, they, they couldn't survive. They couldn't look. They couldn't face a perfect and holy and righteous God. He's spirit. But it explains the only begotten, again, the only son of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained to him. This idea of he has made him known. He was not known. 
and now Christ has made him known in a way that we can understand why. Because he has put on flesh. How does he become the perfect substitute, the sacrifice for us? Well, if he comes and he's an animal, that's not the perfect substitute. He has to be fully human to be that substitute. But not only to take our sin, but also for us to commune with God in this way. To understand God. We understand God through the person of Jesus Christ. He has explained him. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, the word, God's very self-expression, who was both with God and who was God, became flesh. He donned our humanity, save only our sin. And God chose to make himself known, finally and ultimately, in a real historical man. When the word became flesh, God became man. It's amazing truth. Even while emphasizing his deity, he is establishing, though, that he became fully God and fully man. That is, he is one with the fathers. We saw Trinity last week, but he is distinct in person. And he emphasizes that here. The implications are massive. The Bible is clear. We are lost in our transgressions and our sins. You gotta love Ephesians 2. What do you mean? If we're lost, then what do we do? That's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. But Ephesians 2 4 says, But God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Or Galatians 4 4, even more specifically to this. But when the fullness of time came, it says in Galatians 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Born under the law. Again, all these things are necessary so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That's you. That's me. That we might receive adoption as sons. The incarnation is built on this idea throughout the rest of the gospel. So as you look back at these five unique threads, the witness, the light, you kind of, life's going to be another one technically too, but just in this section, these are kind of the five that are highlighted. The witness, the light, the word, the new birth, regeneration, born again. And fifthly, seeing that Christ is, yes, dwelling among us, fully human, but he is fully God in every respect. These ideas are going to be visited over and over and over again as we study this book. And you're going to learn, hopefully, to love these terms and hopefully mark these terms. Now, some of you can't mark your Bible, but if you can stand it, these are the ones. They communicate so much gospel truth and point us to the love of Christ. As I said, you think of John 3.16. So well known that God loved the world. He gave his only, right, son. Only begotten son. Do you recognize some terms? Do we already cover that? You're going to feel like we talked about those. Yes, we did. But once you have an understanding of who God is, how wicked the world is, and that he gave who? His only, his unique son. You start to see how rich even that verse, which you've heard your whole life, will become just by understanding how these key terms are used. Deeper understanding of each one of them should grow your Love of God and of Christ. He is, as we'll see, the light of the world. Why? Because he has caused us 
Nothing we did. He has caused us as we look to him to be born again. Why? Because he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you even as we continue in many ways simply to begin to look at this great book that your spirit inspired to reveal Christ. And by revealing Christ, we see here that he, that is Christ, has explained you. These are majestic truths of which every preacher, every person will fall short of full explanation. But at minimum, to the depth or to the degree that each one of us understands these, may we stand back in awe of what you have done, even as we see what's already been told. The world is going to reject. And of course, as we sit here on the other side of the cross, we know that the world has rejected. But we are comforted that while we, even as individuals, were still sinners, that Christ died for us. And we understand that the reason that we love is because Christ has first loved us. And in time and in history, although Christ has always been and he is the means by which all has been created, he does come in Invade history here at that moment in time, 2,000 years ago, to become flesh, to dwell among us, that he might accomplish the mission that you sent him on to redeem a people for his name. We are thankful and we even now desire to worship you, to have a vision of you, as it were. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.